Reading from Matthew 4, verses 18 through 21. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Good morning, everybody. So there's a legend coming down to us from the early centuries of the church about Barnabas. Everybody remember Barnabas? Barnabas was an early church leader, and he was known as the son of encouragement. And he goes up to the church at Antioch, and they start seeing massive growth. And he's there, he's teaching, he's pastoring, and the growth gets so overwhelming in this church that he remembers to himself, there's somebody that I think would be a really good pastor in this church. And it was a guy by the name of Saul of Tarsus. And so he goes and he finds Saul and he brings him to the church at Antioch. And they begin to pastor and teach there until God's spirit says, set aside Barnabas and Saul, for I have a mission for them to go to the Gentiles. And so they do, and they go to the Gentiles, and after they've done this for a little while, they have a great dispute between the two of them. And it's such a hot dispute, actually, that they decide to part ways, and Paul goes on and revisits his churches, and we take the course of the New Testament with Paul. If you read the book of Acts, you don't really hear from Barnabas again. And if you've read Acts, you kind of wonder sometimes, you're like, you know, Barnabas seemed like he was in the right in this story. He was the one that believed in John Mark, even though he had abandoned them. Whatever happened to Barnabas? Well, there's a legend that comes down to us, this is not in the Bible, but from the early church, that Barnabas then took uh, John Mark, and they went back to Barnabas' homeland, which was the island of Cyprus. And if you, see, if you ever see a picture of Barnabas, an icon of Barnabas from the early church, you'll see him with two things in his hands. In one hand, he'll have a staff, which is reminiscent of a shepherd's staff, and it also is reminiscent of the journeying that he did in the early church. But then you'll also see him holding a book. And the book is disputed as to what book this is, but most people think that it was the book that was laid on top of Barnabas when he died. In his tomb, John Mark, his disciple, laid a copy of the book of Matthew on Barnabas, which he had copied into the language of his own people by hand. Now, we don't know that this is true, but it has a ring of truth for two reasons. One, Barnabas was a disciple maker. In fact, two very famous disciples were discipled by Barnabas, Saul, who became Paul, and John Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark and one of the early church leaders. But it also has a ring of truth because the Gospel of Matthew was the most popular gospel among the early church for this reason. What they like to do with Matthew is take a new convert and read the Gospel of Matthew together to learn what it means to become a disciple. 
Now, this isn't to say the other Gospels don't have their own unique things, but for the early church, they said if you want to take somebody and you want to go through a book with them, do it in the Gospel of Matthew. Because the Gospel of Matthew isn't just an informative book. It isn't just a descriptive book. It's a transforming book. Matthew wrote his Gospel in such a way that you could be transformed from a newcomer or someone who doesn't even know Christ into a disciple and ultimately into a disciple maker. We're going to be studying the Gospel of Matthew from now until Easter, which sounds like a long time, but Matthew is a really long book. We're actually just going to be doing a flyover of Matthew. We're going to be hitting the highlights of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, which gets down to the very core question that we started asking last week in the new year, which is what what does God actually want from you? What does Jesus actually demand from you? It's not just to follow him, although that's a great start. It's not just to receive Christ. It's, it's something more than that. Jesus calls you, and he calls me, to the same thing that he called Simon Peter and his brother Andrew and James and John in this story. Come be my disciple. Come and be a disciple of mine. Now, what is a disciple? So Jesus is walking on the shore of Galilee that morning, and he's already been doing some ministry. He's already been out in the wilderness being tempted. John the Baptist has already raised a great amount of followers who are following him, and they're being introduced to Jesus. And Jesus decides, now's the time. And I want to put put our minds back in that spot of Jesus, who's walking along the Sea of Galilee, which looks a lot like Lake Eufaula. In fact, over there, they don't call it a sea because it's not very big. They call it a lake. And he's walking along the shores of the lake, and he looks out, and you have to think he maybe just took a deep breath like, here it goes. There's two brothers out on a fishing boat, and Jesus says, hey, do you want to come and be my disciples? Do you want to leave the boats behind because I have a job for you to do? Now, you have to know a little bit about what this question would have meant to them to understand why it is that they were so willing to leave their family business, to leave their nets, to leave what they had known, to leave what they had trained to be, to go and wander around with this guy, Jesus. See, in the early part of the first century, when somebody would have said, follow after me, you would have thought that they were a rabbi. The way that Jesus says this in, in the Greek comes through as something a rabbi would have said to other people, except what happened with the early rabbis is all these students would choose the rabbi. And you had trained from the time that you were very young. You would have memorized the Torah. You would have gone through all the rituals. You went to Hebrew school. You went to the synagogue. You went to the temple, if you could, in Jerusalem. You were part of a school of people. And by the time you got to be just an elementary school kid, your head was packed with knowledge about what God had written in the Torah. But the next stage would have been that you put yourself forward before a certain rabbi. You may have made your preferences, and you may with your family have decided, we are going to try to be students of Gamaliel. That's who Paul was a student of. Or we're going to be students of the rabbi Hallel, the most famous rabbi of the day, just before this. And so the students would come before the rabbi, and the rabbi would say yes or no. And if yes, you would go on to more and more schooling so that one day you too, not 
you wouldn't just be a student anymore. You too could become a rabbi. But if you didn't get accepted, you went back and did the family trade. You would go back into being a carpenter or a stonemason, or you would be a banker, or you could be a, you could be a fisherman like these families were. But it was very odd then at this age for someone to come along and the rabbi to ask a student to be his. That was probably the first thing that perked their ears up. They had already been rejected to be students of a rabbi, and now here's a rabbi that they're just now hearing about who's calling his own students. Well, things get more interesting from here. The first thing that you need to know about disciples in this world is disciples were first and foremost learners. Learners. That's what disciple actually means. Disciple is from the Latin word that is translated for disciple in the Vulgate. The Greek word is the word mathetes, which is the same root as the name Matthew, actually. And it means someone who is studying under a teacher, someone who is learning from a master. There was no such thing as self-study back in these days. It was all you are learning from a teacher. You are learning from a master. And so once you got accepted from a rabbi, the first thing you would do is study with them. And I mean, I'm not talking just school study. They would study all day. And they would wake up in the middle of the night. Because, you know, in the Psalms it says, I meditate, you, meditate on you during the watches of the night. So they were up at midnight, and they would do an hour of study together. And they were learning all about what the rabbi knew so that they could also then be able to comment on the Torah. The Torah, for us, is the first five books of the Old Testament. But for a rabbi, Torah is broader than that. The word Torah means instruction. It means teaching. And what you would do when you come to a rabbi is you would learn their Torah. Not just the Torah, you have that memorized. Their Torah is their own commentary on the Torah. Their own instruction, their own way of putting it into practice. You would become a disciple of theirs, not just because you knew the Bible, but because you knew their interpretation of the Bible, and their teacher's interpretation of the Bible, and their teacher's interpretation of the Bible. The other thing you would call this is a yoke. Every rabbi had a yoke. And the yoke is what you would symbolically put on every day. They would wear prayer shawls, and you would put on that shawl that looked exactly like your rabbi's in the morning. And it was figuratively known as taking on their yoke to learn from them and to do what they have commented on in all the Torah. So Jesus coming along on the Sea of Galilee that morning isn't just a teacher. He's, he's not just someone who has great moral ideas. He's framing himself as a rabbi. Come, learn from me. Come and take on my Torah, my instruction. Come, he says in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 29, to all of us, come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Learn from Jesus the way to live in the world, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is an authoritative teacher. He is not just someone who comes and lives and dies and rises. That's really important, but don't miss the fact that all the way up to that point, Jesus is teaching. He is giving his own 
Torah. He is giving his own yoke. And if you want to be his disciple, the first thing you have to do is learn from him. That's why the church loved the Gospel of Matthew, because it's organized around five giant blocks of teaching. You know how many books the Torah has, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. This is Jesus' Torah. This is Jesus' new reflection on what God had said from the beginning of time until now. It is an authoritative teaching on God's word. We'll see this when we get into the Sermon on the Mount next week where Jesus says, you have heard it said this. That's another Torah. But God's word says this. And I say to you this. He is an authoritative, instructive teacher. He has a yoke for you to take on. And throughout the Gospel of Matthew, you begin to learn what your master says about the world. See, the problem for modern disciples is we have such an individual streak that we think we should be the ones who get to decide what we think about everything, which is funny because you have many yokes in your life that you can take on every morning. In fact, none of us are self-taught. We are all being discipled by someone or something, whether we watch it on YouTube, whether we're around them at work, whether we read their writings. We are all taking on a yoke, and Jesus says, here's, here's the fundamental decision of a disciple as a learner. Whose yoke gets the final say? Whose teaching is authoritative in your life? When God says this about, this is how justice is. This is how righteousness works. This is the role of faith and good works. Do you take that or do you take somebody else's Torah? Somebody else's teaching. Jesus is presented in this gospel, and one of the reasons that when he comes on the shore with these disciples, they immediately respond is, he is a master rabbi, here to teach us the way to see the world. So if you want to be his disciple, you must be a learner. You must be a learner. But there's something even more that he's asking them to do, because all kinds of teachers would take learners. Rabbis took Learners who had become imitators. Imitators. A disciple is an imitator. Think about the best word that we have for discipleship is the word apprenticeship. Okay, the, the word apprenticeship for us carries all the same weight and baggage that theirs did, where you enroll in something, and you learn, and you become a journeyman, and then you become a master eventually, to where now you are authorized to do that work on your own. This is how learning in the ancient world was. Apprenticeships are about doing something. You don't do apprenticeships in theoretical disciplines where at the end your head is full of information. You do an apprenticeship in something where at the end you can hang up your shingle and actually go after a craft. You can start your own business. You can do something for people and earn a living doing it. And Jesus calls out to them and he says, follow me, imitate me. See, the, the rabbis would often talk about serving under uh, their master by saying, when I was walking behind Rabbi Jonathan, when I was walking behind Rabbi Shammai, this is the exact phrase that Jesus used. It's not just come and follow me, it's come and walk right behind me. It's funny when you go to Israel or if you go to New York and you see the groups of Hasidic Jews, they still practice this kind of imitation. If their rabbi wears a certain hat, they wear a certain hat. 
If their rabbi buys his white shirts from somewhere, they buy their white shirts from there. If he wears a certain kind of socks, they wear the certain kind of socks. They want to do everything the exact same way as their rabbi. Jesus here is calling not just, hey, when you think about it, do the things that I do. No, order your life so that you are directly behind me. What's interesting about this is it requires for us a fundamental change in the way you see the world. A disciple is someone who sees the world through the lens of their master. What's good is what my master does. What's bad is what my master does not do. What is fulfilling for me is following in the steps of my master. What is bad for me is doing my own thing. And this grates so hard against our individualism. In fact, there's a new book out called How Do We Know Ourselves? And it's written by a psychologist who talks about all these kinds of self-referential knowledge. And the first chapter is called Implicit Egotism. Implicit Egotism. This is like when... When you're egotistical and you don't even know about it, it's just hardwired into you. And he points to examples like we all have this implied self-centeredness, so much so that there are 50% more Lewises in St. Louis than in other cities. Why? Because your name is the greatest word in the English language. (laughs) In fact, there are two times as many dentists named Dennis as there are other names. Why? Because implicitly we, we long for that kind of affinity and recognition. My favorite is a study that they did years ago. There were some sociologists that did a study. And what they did was they sent these people to house parties. These were college students. And they sent these people to house parties wearing really gaudy, almost like neon Barry Manilow t-shirts. And what they did was they asked the person who was wearing the T-shirt how many people, what percent of the people noticed your shirt. And so they would go to these parties and then they would come back and they would say like 80%, 90%, 100%. Then they would survey the people who were at the party. And they would say, did you notice anyone wearing a strange T-shirt? And then they would ask them, did you notice anyone wearing a Barry Manilow T-shirt? And the percentages were like 10%. 15%, 20%. And they named this the halo effect. It's the effect that we tend to think other people are thinking about us because we are thinking about us, but people are not thinking about us because they're thinking about themselves. That's the way the world works. And if you want to be a disciple, what you have to do is reorient your life to where your thoughts, your goals, your satisfaction is based on Jesus your teacher, your master. You now evaluate the world through the lens of him, not through the lens of me. It's the reverse halo effect. I'm no longer thinking about myself because I'm thinking about him, how to imitate him, how to be like him. He is the new measuring stick for my life. In 1896, actually in Topeka, Kansas, not far from here, there was a pastor named Charles Sheldon who wrote a book called In His Steps. And it was a book about imitating Jesus. And the book ended up being so successful, and he forgot to copyright it so anybody could print it, and it ended up selling 30 million copies. Do you know what the subtitle was? What would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? 
Well, about 100 years later, there was a youth group in Holland, Michigan, and their youth leaders, as you do, are trying to think of something really cool for their students to do. And they thought, they had read, one of their youth leaders had read this book from 100 years earlier, and they thought, we should make What Would Jesus Do t-shirts. And then somebody says, no, 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 no. The big thing right now is friendship bracelets. We should make What Would Jesus Do friendship bracelets. And they did. They printed 300 of them for their youth group. And by the time they gave all of them away, they went back to make more and found out that it had been copyrighted. And a company was already printing them. And from then, which is, which is in the late 90s until now, they have sold over 200 million What Would Jesus Do bracelets. You can remember when this was a big fad. The question, I think the reason, it became kind of a social phenomenon. If you were anybody, you would have it. Then you turn it inside out. Then you get the rainbow one. And it became kind of a status symbol. But at its base, this is a phenomenal question. If Jesus were here now, what would Jesus be doing? That's the question that a disciple asks. How can I do what my master would do? Now, the key here is you have to know what Jesus would do. This is where some of this goes wrong is everybody's like, what would Jesus do? Pretty much what I would do. No, you do what you've learned from your master to do. So you have to know his word to be able to answer the question, what would Jesus do? But a disciple is a stand-in for the master. In fact, the Bible begins by saying you were made in the image of God. You represent God. And we think image of God, does that mean that that we look like him? Does that mean that we act like him? An image in the ancient world, everybody would have known what the image of God was. An image is something that you put in place to represent your authority, your rules, your reign in a place where you are not. So if you're on the very outskirts of the Roman Empire, you have never been to Rome, you have never met the emperor, you will never meet the emperor, you'll never even see them in person, but there's a statue to Augustus. And that statue is the image of Augustus. And it means his rules are the ones that we follow. That's what the image means. He is the sovereign here because that's his image. When you pull out your coin, and it has that person's image on it. They're the one that minted this. They're the one that gets to make the rules. You know, when Jesus is asked about this, they say, is it, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? This was a hugely political, loaded question for Jesus. And do you remember what Jesus says? He says, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Before that, he says, whose face is on that coin? Caesar's. This is Caesar's image. This coin is Caesar's image, but give unto God what is God's. It's almost like Jesus implicitly is saying, whose face is on you? Whose thumbprint is on you? Whose image is on you? Your life is the image of God. You are a walking reminder to the world that God's rules apply here. The rule of love and forgiveness and honoring him. You are a walking reminder because you are a disciple of the image of the king. Which leads us to the third thing that these disciples would have known when Jesus calls out from the shore. The disciple is not just a learner. They're not just an imitator. They are a co-worker. A disciple is a co-worker. The disciple has an end goal. When Jesus says, Follow me, and I will make you 
fishers of men. He is casting a vision for them of what their life will be like if they become his disciple. They will return to their boats, but they will return a different kind of person. They will, they will be a person at that point whose priorities and identity and outlook on the world are so transformed that instead of fishing for fish, they will now be fishing for people. In fact, in Luke, he says it a little bit differently. In Luke 5.10, it says, from now on, you'll be catching people. You're going to take all the precision, all the drive, all the studying that you spent learning how to fish for fish, and I'm going to teach you those, those things for fishing for people. See, it's not a surprise that the end of Matthew is a great commission, because at the end of Matthew, all the disciples are enlisted in the mission with Jesus. This is what it means to be a disciple, not just to be puffed up with knowledge, not just to try on your own and individually try to follow Jesus, but to be co-opted into the mission of God, the kingdom of God. And if you are his disciple, you are now a person who is working with God to build the kingdom. I'll never forget one of the most important conversations I ever had was when I was a freshman in college, and one of the campus ministries at OSU named Stumo sent their guys, and they invited me to lunch, which, of course, I went to because they were buying. So as a first week, I go to the union, get Chick-fil-A or something, sit down with them, and they say, are you a believer? I said, yes, I've been a believer for a couple of years. They said, okay, here's what we need to ask you. They get out a piece of paper, and they draw a dot, and on that dot, they write disciple. And then they draw a line across the page, and on the other dot, they write disciple maker. And they say, I want you to put a mark on this line as to where you are. So I put a mark in the middle, because I had no idea what they were talking about. I, I, I didn't understand at all what the difference was between the two. So I'm about 50% of the way. And they said, you know what? Most people think that when you become a Christian, you just become a Christian. That means you're going to heaven, and you've got that insurance, and you're going to live for God when it's convenient, and you're going to study, and it's very much you and God. But God's plan for you, actually, is not just to be a disciple. It's to be a disciple maker. It's to be involved in the mission. It's to be an emissary of the living God who is taking up what Jesus says in Matthew 28, going to all the nations, going as you go or going internationally or whatever God has you doing, making disciples, baptizing them, sharing your testimony, baptizing new converts, and then teaching believers to obey everything that God has taught them to do. That's the life of a disciple is at some point to join in on the mission. So your discipleship has stalled if you believe that all you're doing is intaking from God. Because to be a disciple, you actually have to be a co-worker with God, accomplishing the mission. I mean, think about this. Jesus, fundamentally essential to his mission, is to call disciples. Think about how wild this is. If you're God and you decide, okay, I'm going to save all these people, I'm going to do all these wonderful things, what you should do is set up shop in Jerusalem. Don't get tight with anybody because they will let you down. Don't entrust anything to anyone because they will screw it up. Teach authoritatively, heal people, preach your message. You are eternal. Don't die. Just live there forever. That would be a great strategy if you were God. Doesn't that sound totally rational? But instead, Jesus decides to come and call 12 guys, not called by other rabbis, 
not impressive in the sight of the world. In fact, he only gets 11 out of 12 at the end to follow him. And he entrusts them. Because at the end of Matthew, he ascends to heaven. And he says, now it's on you. Now it's on you. By my spirit, I'll be with you. I have all authority. I'm giving you everything you need. But it's on you guys. And the fact that we're here today means that they told somebody who told somebody who told somebody through thousands of years. Now, the church is across the globe because God has designed things in such a more beautiful, wonderful way than what I just described. He designed it in such a way that you actually don't just get to trust in Christ, you get to become a part of Christ's hands and feet on the earth. He didn't just give you salvation, he gave you a mission to accomplish. And it's, it's an alarming, it's, it makes you feel so inadequate at first that you have been the plan A for the people around you, but that's part of the point. Jesus, you're always going to be dependent on him when you do these things, but, but you are the plan A. There is no other plan. You are the plan. Will you be a co-worker with him? I was reminded this when we were having holiday uh, with my family, we were talking about all kinds of things. And I was reminded, I had totally forgotten this. My dad was reminding me that I had come to Carlton Landing actually before COVID, like in 2018 or something like that. I always think the first time we came was when we came out to talk to the elders and start preaching. But I, I, he reminded me, I came before that because somebody, I guess when, when there were rotating teachers, somebody called my dad at crossings and said, hey, can you come out and preach in Carlton Landing? But he was busy that weekend. So he did what my dad loved to do, which was, I can't come, but my son can come, which must have sounded to whoever, maybe David Kimmel, like, oh, great. Yeah, I can't come, but Junior, Junior can come. He'll, he'll give you a uh, second team sermon. And so I come out and preach, and apparently it wasn't memorable. I didn't even remember it, and I'm sure other people didn't either. It couldn't have been that great a sermon. But it was one of those where I felt like, oh, th- this is something that my dad was supposed to do, and now I'm filling in for him. This is going to reflect on him. So I stole one of his sermons and preached it in, no, I'm just kidding. But um, there's a pressure when you know that it's somebody else who's on the line. It's somebody else who's been requested. It's somebody else that you are going as a representative of. And in the Great Commission, what Jesus is commissioning us to do is, he says, I'm going to be all over the place. By my spirit, I'm going to be serving people. I'm going to be teaching people. I'm going to be loving on people. I'm going to be proclaiming what God has done throughout all the world, but instead of me being there in the flesh, you're going to be there in the flesh. And I'm going to be there by my spirit. My spirit is going to dwell in you in such a way that when you show up, it will be like Christ. The face of Christ is there with them because You are my disciples. You're my disciples. You're my representatives. You're the people who have learned from me. You've walked with me. You've trusted in me. You've imitated me. Now go and do my will. That's what it means to be a disciple. The whole gospel of Matthew is about this one concept. How do you go from just knowing about Christ to learning from him to following him to doing what he would do in your situation? So the question I leave you with this morning is an easy question. Where are you in the discipleship process? Are you, do you know Christ? Are you kind of like the disciples where he's just now shouting out from the shore, follow me, and you're thinking about 
Do I leave the boats? This is going to require some change. Do I reorient my life differently? Do I start out this year and begin to really follow him and ask questions and forget, be forgiven of my sins, or do I keep doing what I was doing? For most of you, though, I think the question is not, are you going to follow him? You're following him. It's just, are you, are you in the learner stage? Are you, are you understanding what he taught about the world? Are you imitating him? Are you trying each day to put into practice the things that he's taught you? Are you a co-worker with him? Some people in here have done all the learning and all the imitating in their own life, but you're sitting in the stands when the game is being played. It's like when Jesus in chapter 9 sends out the disciples for the first time. He tells them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And in chapter 10, which we'll get to, he gives them instructions on what it means to get in the game. Some of you need to get in the game. The mission is on your shoulders. You are going to be God's representatives to the people around you. Learn to share your faith. Learn to study the Bible. Learn to teach people to pray. Learn to serve. Start to give of your time and your money and your energy because you are the mission. You're the plan A. And God is saying, come, follow me, imitate me, work with me. The kingdom is at hand. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for enlisting us into the greatest mission that has ever been given, the reunion of your people. Father, the great forgiveness of sin, the triumph of your son's death on the cross, the opening to eternal life. Father, you have made us heralds of that news. Father, you've given us the task of helping people follow you, and by us following you, we learn how to follow you. So, Lord, I pray this morning that by your spirit you would bring encouragement, conviction, that you would show the next step for people who are wondering, how how do I take my next step as a disciple? Father, I pray that over the next 15 or 16 weeks as we study this, you would do a work in us, that you would transform us to be the perfect image of Christ in our world. In Jesus' name we pray. Let's stand and sing together this song of commitment.